Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up, a podcast where we focus exclusively on the features from WFUV's newsroom. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Shana Walsh. And here are this week's features from WFUV's What's What podcast. WFUV Music is hosting a number of in-person events. WFUV's music director, Russ Boris, talks with Robin Shannon about some of the upcoming special marquee concerts. For those who don't know, how are marquee events different than other WFUV events? Uh, marquee events are uh, events that we put on several times throughout the year with our WFUV marquee members who are sort of the higher level donors. They get private events or rather uh, invites to private events throughout the course of the year. And these are always super exciting. They might be at um, smaller venues in New York City, like Rockwood Music Hall or The Loft at Sydney Winery, to give you a couple of examples. And we'll have artists that, you know, either WFUV has already turned you on to or some brand new artists that we're about to, you know, hip you to. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that I think is really cool for people that um, I always talk about it being sort of like a built-in date night, uh, you know, where you have the opportunity to go with, with someone else, you know, you bring a friend or bring a partner or whatever. And, you know, you always have an opportunity to go do something cool and to see something cool. And so since, um, since we've been back doing some of the marquee events, we started late last year, you know, kind of slowly, but, you know, from February, February on, we've been, you know, up and running pretty well. And we've done shows, you know, with the likes of, you know, Parquet Courts and um, we had a recent show with Marcus King, uh, which just blew the roof off of Rockwood Music Hall, as did one with Chris Stone, Kingfish Ingram. Um, you know, we, we kind of varied up. We did sort of a storyteller night with Craig Finn from The Hold Steady, which I think was really cool. Uh, we have shows come up with Steve Earle on October 17th and Lissy on uh, November 1st and working on a few other ideas. So it, it really is about, um, you know, having a, a really special experience uh, with WFUV, um, both on the member side and on the staff side, as you know, you'll see a bunch of WFUV staff members at the shows as well. And how have the crowds been at these events? Are they um, a little bit more receptive now that, you know, people are allowed to get out and get moving a little bit more now that the pandemic is, you know, not as concerning as it was? Yeah, I, I think that's evolved, you know, and I think in the very beginning, we had done the first show last year at the Sheen Center in October, and we had uh, kind of a double bill. Uh, both artists were solo or, you know, kind of a stripped down, you know, solo or duo set with um, Strand of Oaks and Arlo Parks. And I had walked out on the stage and the first thing we had done in, you know, a year and a half's time and saw the WFUV marquee member sitting down. And I mean, it was it was kind of a surreal thing. And so that was an adjustment just to, you know, have a starting point. And I think as time has gone on, you know, you'd see, you've seen the comfort level, you know, grow, I think with, with staff and attendees. Um, it's just taken time and, you know, in terms of attendance itself, you know, that kind of varies, uh, you know, it, it's, it's difficult. I, I think a lot of people don't work the same schedules now. Um, you know, so some people aren't in the city as much, some people left the city. So you, you're, we're getting back and, and the crowds are very receptive and very excited. And, you know, you've seen a, a lot of growth there, but it's, it's a different animal, you know, than maybe it was a couple of years back. Yeah. And so Russ, how can our listeners get more information about marquee events? Uh, the easiest way is to go to the website at wfuv.org, you know, and, you know, go to the membership section and then you can find out more and you can obviously contact the membership department anytime uh, by that way and get um, any questions answered about marquee membership. Russ Boris, music director of FUV. Thanks. That was WFUV's Robin Shannon talking with music director Russ Boris. For information about becoming a WFUV marquee member, visit wfuv.org slash marquee.
Home healthcare aides in New York are working 24-hour shifts, but only being paid for 13 hours. While these workers are provided with a place to sleep during the -the around-the-clock shifts, they often end up working through the night to provide constant care for their patients. WFUV's Megan Oftermat reports that after enduring these conditions for years, they're fighting to get 24-hour shifts repealed. That's Gu Jifeng. She's a 64-year-old, live-in, home health care worker who has been working 24-hour consecutive shifts for the past year. Here's the problem. The union and the insurance companies pay for 13 hours of work, even though live-in caretakers are expected to stay for 24 hours. Miss Gu told me that when she works for 24 hours straight, it's impossible to get one hour of consecutive sleep. And other workers echo Miss Gu. Nobody is sleeping during these shifts. The biggest problem that we've seen is the 24-hour shifts, and those really started becoming more common. What we've heard from home attendants, they, be, they were always 24-hour shifts for patients who needed 24-hour care. That's Jihae Song. She's a member of the Anti-A-Woman campaign, which worked to eliminate sweatshop conditions in New York City. The organization is also supporting the healthcare workers' efforts to outlaw 24-hour workdays. Jihae says that these two issues bleed together because the same group of people is impacted for the same reasons. It's considered service work, right? So who's going to do that? It's going to be the most economically vulnerable populations, which tends, you know, it's usually immigrants of color and undocumented immigrants of color. And that isn't just speculation. One Queens-based home health care agency, Sunnyside Community Services, told the New York City Council that 97% of their workforce is women of color who are mostly immigrants. While that's just one agency, Ms. Gu certainly fits that bill. She is originally from Shanghai, China, and moved to the United States 16 years ago. She's been working in home health care for that entire time, watching as the 24-hour shifts became more common. Sometimes, she works four shifts in a row. That's 96 hours straight. Even if you don't speak Chinese, you may have caught that last word there. With tears in her eyes, Miss Gu told me that this work has become very difficult. When she does have the chance to sleep, she needs to take sleeping pills, which sometimes simply don't work. She's struggling with anxiety and depression. Her back hurts from the manual labor she's required to do to assist her patient. Miss Gu was one of many home health care workers standing outside in the wind and the rain to protest these 24-hour workdays. Her fellow protesters were holding pieces of cardboard, painted red, and cut into the shape of stop signs that said, stop the 24-hour workday. This group of Asian women made their way to New York City Council member Sandra Ung's office in Flushing because they want the District 20 representative to support a city council bill currently in committee that would ban these 24-hour shifts. For many of these home health care aides, 
the passing of that bill, Intro 175, would end years of workplace suffering. These women are desperate. They are asking for your help. That's John Cho, a representative from the Greater Flushing Chamber of Commerce, who's advocating for these home health care workers. These women are looking to the New York City Council for help, to their union, the 1199 SEIU, and to the insurance companies who fund their services. But it isn't an overnight fix. This issue is at the center of a tangled web of city and state regulations, Medicaid spending caps and limitations, insurance companies who only cover 13 of the hours in a 24-hour long shift, and unions that push confusing arbitration that even their members don't fully understand. In part two of the No More 24 series, we'll get caught in that web and try to find our way out. That was WFUV's Megan Oftermat talking about home health care aides fighting to get 24-hour shifts repealed. Over the past few months, New York state officials have discovered traces of polio in New York City's wastewater samples. Just this week, they found some in Brooklyn and Queens. Patrick Cockburn survived polio as a child and recently penned a cover story for The Nation about the return of polio. WFUV's Taylor Massetta spoke with him about what's to come for New York City. What was your reaction when you found out that the polio virus had reemerged in New York? Well, kind of depressed. Polio has come very close to being eliminated. It didn't happen for various reasons. People just got used to the idea that they wouldn't get polio so they can get vaccinated. Uh, is one. Another is that in places in Islamic Muslim countries like Pakistan, Afghanistan, anti-polio vaccination campaigns were denounced as a, sort of a cover for espionage and so forth. That discouraged it. And then, of course, we had COVID and people were more preoccupied with that. How does polio in the wastewater differ than like a polio strain that causes an outbreak? Well, it shows the virus is present. The thing about polio is that it spreads very, very easily, even more easily than uh, than COVID. It also can infect 100 people and 99 or 98 of them have no symptoms. The 100th person falls ill and particularly, particularly affects small children. They can be... Uh, crippled for life, paralyzed. There was a big uh, outbreak in New York in uh, 1915. I think it killed a couple of thousand people. But that isn't quite why people became so frightened of it. First of all, it affected children and people are, you know, terrified of anything happening to their children. Secondly, uh, you know, it disabled them, it might disable them, uh, their legs, you know, uh, my legs are disabled, I can walk and so forth, but I can't run. For my next question, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your own personal experience with polio. Could you describe it to me? I got in court. We lived in the countryside. My parents thought that we'd be okay, kind of safe there. But my father was going backwards and forwards to London. So he probably got it and brought it. And then, you know, suddenly I had some flu symptoms. The doctors came. I went to hospital. I was terrified because I was six. I'd probably you know, never been away from my parents or, uh, before. I was in a fever hospital for about three weeks. I wasn't really conscious of what's happened to me, which was my legs so, and back began to uh, were affected. Another sort of orthopedic hospital, which I spent about three months there. Conditions were very bad. So my, my parents thought I was, uh, I'd stopped talking. So my parents thought I was probably dying. So they brought me, doctors advised against it, but they brought me home. And so I recovered pretty fast. 
going to affect my legs, but I, you know, I, I was in a wheelchair for a bit, but then I sort of relearned to walk and so forth. So in your article, you mentioned that you don't pick at emotional scar tissue regarding the illness, and you just keep pushing forward. What helped you develop this positive mentality? Well, lack of alternative, you know. <laughs> say, you know, often the people who are sick, you know, it's amazing how people have carried on. Well, what do you expect them to do? You know, drop dead, you know. So one doesn't have much choice. And, you know, although I was, I was affected, I'd limp, I couldn't, you know, I could, I could operate fairly well. Be a, a journalist, but I mostly sort of covered wars in the Middle East and elsewhere. I sort of thought, you know, the fact that I felt quite at ease in such places probably had some connection with having had polio and having had bad, bad experiences as a child. But, uh, but who knows? Do you think people will be more resistant of getting the polio vaccine today compared to years prior? I was thinking about that. I don't really know the answer. I think if it once starts, you know, spreading and people start getting paralyzed, particularly children, I think that, you know, that probably there'll be less resistance than COVID. Because people are just terrified of anything happening to their children, you know. It's, um, so I think there might be less. I think that the fear would sort of grow sort of enormously, just like it diminished as soon as we had the vaccines, if it sort of started coming back. Even if it wasn't that number of people, I think you'd you'd, uh, you'd have a big react. People uh, people would uh, go get vaccinated. That was WFUV's Taylor Massetta speaking with Patrick Cockburn about polio's potential impact on New York City. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for more features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. Make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast. It explores current events, culture news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan area. Including features and interviews just like the ones you heard today, exclusively from FUV. You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3 p.m., subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or find more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Shana Walsh. And I'm David Escobar.